0: Amen. Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing all right? Looking good. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Before we get into that part of it, if you'll get out your bulletin, there's like an extra flap on the backside here that is about missions. Uh, some of you can take a breath. i are not doing a whole sermon on missions. Just want to talk about it for a second. Uh, how many of you have been on a mission trip, whether it's with 1122 or not. Raise your hand, raise it high. Really, be proud, not the sinful kind, but okay, look around, look at these people at every campus, Bay Meadows, Mandarin, Sanctuary, raise them high, keep them up, keep them up. Okay, these are the people that at the end of the service, you should go and ask these people, should I really go, all right? Now, we're also gonna have other people that like that we ask to answer those questions and they'll tell you things, but, but you should ask those people and, be like, and they might tell you, nah, I wouldn't do it. Okay, but here's the thing. <laughs> at 1122... Um, we, we ask that every person in the first three years of you being a 22-er that you go on a mission trip. You say, how in the world did you get that? From the Bible, here's what I mean. Jesus discipled the disciples for about three years, and then he said, go therefore into all the nations and make disciples. So we're gonna do what Jesus says. Now the good news is, is he doesn't say Stay so you get to come back home, all right? So some people are called full-time vocationally to live in another place, another context. Praise God, not so much me. Uh, here's the thing, we've got a bunch of options here, a whole bunch of options in a whole bunch of different countries. And so look through that, pray through that and go. And some of you, I know you think, well, what am I going to do? I'm not a missionary. I'm not a professional Christian. I haven't read the whole Bible. I love what Paul Martino says. I'm always the last one in my group to find the verses. Okay. I would just like to highlight one of them, Panama B sports trip is led by Jacksonville Jaguars very own Donovan Darius who is also an 1122-er. He used to smash people's heads in in the NFL and now he's smashing Satan with the gospel for 1122. Praise God. So uh, that, can, that sports, he runs sports camps all over our city and now we're, we're kind of baptizing what he does we're gonna do it in Panama so if you have ever seen football on television then you are qualified to help be a leader in that one also pay attention to my Facebook page for the rest of the week or two we're gonna highlight a bunch of these different trips and we would like for you to go and make disciples to the very ends year. so I hope you will do that um, and also as you go I'm about to, uh, I'm kind of preparing to leave the country, going to a couple of places. And, and one of the things that you do when you go is, you know, you got to prepare. And one of the preparations that you make is you kind of got to figure out um, where you're going and what some of the dangers are. That's just part of it, okay? And so one of the things you do is you get shots and you take medicine, right? So uh, I'll be going to Africa soon, and, and one of the things you got to watch out for in Africa are things like uh, yellow fever and malaria, Ready to sign up and go on missions now, okay? It's just part of what you have to do. And so <clears throat> here's the thing. Here's the thing about any kind, of, any kind of thing that you might catch. You can't actually see that thing that you might catch, right? So if you're going to Uganda, that's where I'm going soon. If you're going to Uganda, you got to think malaria. Uh-oh, malaria. Now, don't just think Uganda, okay? If you're going to your office, guess what you got to think? Flu, strep, because everybody's got it right now. So you're no more safe here than anywhere else. But the thing is, is you can't see malaria. You can't see the flu. You can't see strep. So this unseen thing gets on the inside of you, and then from the inside out, what do you see? You still can't see flu. You see symptoms of the flu. And it is a kind of a negative, but it is a picture of what the gospel does. You see, a lot of us were raised with this outside-in menta- outside mentality. And as we've been walking through the book of Colossians now, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the symptoms of a gospel-infected heart. That there's this thing that you can't necessarily see, the Spirit of God wooing you unto himself. I cannot see if you're saved or not. I can't see your relationship with God. It's not an outside-in thing, but when the gospel gets on the inside of you, like when the flu gets on the inside of you, stuff just starts happening on the outside of you. And when the gospel infects somebody's heart, there are things that just begin to start happening from the inside out. And so, we've been, as we've been walking through Colossians, this is what you have to understand. When I do a series, like as we've been walking through uh, Before All Things in our hearts, it's really like a four-hour sermon that's cut up into four pieces. I still believe everybody would hang out for four hours, but I'm the only one that believes that. And so we have to cut it up into bite-sized chunks so that we would have people come back every week, okay? And so as we move into what are the symptoms of a gospel-infected heart, you gotta understand that this is standing on the shoulders of the previous three weeks. That, that our sin... Our record of debt has been canceled by being nailed to the cross. That this thing is not about a religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that relationship with Jesus Christ, then we have to vivify that relationship or do the things that stir our affections for the Lord. We have to turn our eyes or fix our eyes on things above, and that in that fixing of our eyes on things above, then God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to mortify the sin, kill the sin that is trying to kill us so right on the heels of that then we're going to pick it up here in verse 11 and and the reason I want to set it up this way is because what the apostle Paul does here in Colossians chapter 3 is the same thing God has been doing all throughout the scriptures you see, it always starts with God's relationship with us. That vertical relationship is first, and that vertical relationship then impacts all of our horizontal relationships. Even like the Ten Commandments, if you'll, even if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, before God ever gives the first commandment, he makes this declaration, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then the commandments roll out. The way Tim Keller says it in uh, the book I Talked about last week, the freedom of self-forgetfulness is this: is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only place where the verdict happens first and then the performance. Or even Jesus himself, when this lawyer says, So what's the greatest commandment? He's like, Well, that's easy. All of the law, all of the prophets, in other words, the whole Bible could be summed up this way: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment is like it: Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, a lot of us were taught the other way. A lot of us were taught, you work on the symptoms, and if you get all the symptoms, then maybe you'll be infected with the gospel. But the way the scriptures teach it are the exact opposite way. That that God does something on the inside of us first that affects everything because of the infection that happens on the inside. So we'll pick it up in verse 11. Paul says, here, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but, and here's, here's kind of the point of the whole passage, Christ is all and in all. And then in verse 12, he's gonna talk about how that happens. In verse 12, he's gonna lay out the infection, but the reason that I wanted to start in verse 11 is because verse 11 is one of the symptoms of the gospel-infected heart. And this is this. It, this is what it means. That... that If Christ is in you, then there is no room in the Christian heart for prejudice or hate. There's just no room in it for that. That if Christ is in you, Christ is all, and he's the all in all, and therefore the gospel breaks down religious barriers and social barriers and racial barriers and socioeconomic barriers. Not because any person thinks they're better than anybody, but we know that the the ground at the foot of the cross is extremely level. And that the gospel would say there are only two races, multiple ethnicities that should be celebrated, praise God. But there are two races. There's the race of Adam, and there's the race of Christ. This is why the Church of 1122 is a movement for all people, all color people, all kind of people, all religious backgrounds of people, all socioeconomic classes of people, all uh, red state, blue state, whatever all people if you fall in the all people category then I've got good news for you then this the gospel is a movement for you and the church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus and here's the thing the all people is not the most important part the relationship with Jesus is the reason that we can be a movement for all people honestly is not just because uh finally in the south people are catching on that that's a good idea The reason is because Christ is all and in all. And when the gospel infects our heart, it roots out and rules out any, any prejudice or hate. And you think, well, how in the world could that happen? Verse 12, he answers that question. Verse 12, he says, put on then. And when he says put on then, you got to remember last week. Last week, he told us what to take off, right? Because if you're going to renew something, you got to take off the old before you put on the new. You would look quite silly if you wanted to change clothes tonight, but you didn't take off before you put on, and you just had multiple layers on. Like if you go to the gym and stink up those clothes and then just put some church clothes over top of them, everybody knows that ain't going to work, right? Uh, you got to take off before you put on, and what he said last week was take off the sin that is trying to kill you, kill the sin that's killing you. This is what the word repent means. Repent means to change direction, uh, to rethink your strategy of life. Instead of trusting the ways of this world, why not trust the creator of life to live life to its fullest? And so, last week was a bunch of the stuff you take off. And then he says, put on then, and then he's going to give a little caveat, which is really, really important. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, I think, I'm really afraid that a lot of times when we read the Bible, these little phrases like this, we just get by them too quick. And get to the, like, application stuff that's to come. But here's why this is important. You have to know who you are before you're going to know what to do. And what he's saying here is, is Paul is establishing who you are. First of all, if you are in Christ, you are God's chosen ones. That God picked you. Now, the, uh, the theological terminology for that would be the doctrine of election. Which kind of, which man, a lot of Americans don't love this. Because we think we are free and that we can decide. And I have free will. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. But you don't really have free will. Will yourself to be nine feet tall. Ready? Go. So you can't. You have very, very limited options in your free will that we take so seriously. And so what he wants us to know here. Here's why, here's why this is such good news. The book of Ephesians says that if you're in Christ, that God chose you before the earth was ever created you know what this means this means that there has never been a time that you were not loved by God it's not that you used to be pretty crappy and then you started coming to 1122 and then you caught God's peripheral vision he goes what is she doing well look at her I used to hate her and now she's singing with her hands up get in the family that is not the way it works at all Here, here's what Charles Spurgeon says about the doctrine of election. Charles Spurgeon was uh, the prince of preachers. Here's what he says He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. <laughs> And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. That's, that's a reformer's uh, shot at comedy right there. Basically what he's saying is, obviously God had to pick me before I was born because after I was born, I was not pickable. That is what he is saying. You see, here, here's what this means. This is why this is good news for you. Uh, the doctrine of election should help you just relax for a second. Like you're not going to surprise God. You're not going to surprise God. And he didn't pick you because of you. He picked you because of him. He chose you and is drawing you unto himself because God is love. And out of an overflow of God's love for God's self, that love spills out onto you. And he demonstrated his love for you in this, that before you were pickable, while you were yet still sinners, that Christ died for us. Um, it's like, I've told you this a million times, if, it's like God ran a Carfax on you. Like he's making the decision, am I gonna take it or not? Because you know, we're all kind of used up beaters, right? I mean, that's just what we are. And he ran a Carfax on you and it came back busted. It was like leaks oil, doesn't get good gas, gas mileage, swerves to the left, busted up, broken, lemon, lemon, lemon. And God goes, perfect, I'll take it. And then he doesn't just polish it up from the outside. He steps into the driver's seat and he makes it perfect, completely restored. This is why God can't be disappointed in you. Because disappointed, the reason that you're disappointed in people, say me for example, uh, there's multiple times you've come here and you're like, well that was a disappointing sermon. It's because you had this expectation and I didn't meet your expectation. You've never let God down because you were never holding him up. He never looked at you and thought, I thought you'd do better by now. He knew what a crackerjack you are. I had these words come into my mind that I can't use. (laughs) That just happens, okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) And so, because you're God's chosen one, that makes you holy. Holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means set apart. That's what holy means. The word holy just means set apart. So God looks at you and goes that one's mine. It's like the it's like the 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 cosmic eternal game of Red Rover. And he calls you. Come on, you're on my team. And 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 because you're chosen and holy, not perfect, but adopted into his family, that makes you, here's another title, beloved. Beloved. That is a great title. You see It kinda only works in English, but if you break the word down from beloved, which is the title, which some some translations translate it like friend or loved one. No, I like the word beloved, because it could be a sentence in and of itself, just be loved. And if you knew that you're the beloved of God, then you could just be loved by God. And you see, loved people love people. Hurt people, hurt people. Abuse people, abuse people. Forgiving people, forgive people. But loved people, love people. So before he gets into any of, the, uh, any of the performance, here's how you're supposed to act, here comes the verdict. Chosen, holy, be loved. Now, now that you know who you are, if you were infected by the gospel deep down in your heart, here's some symptoms you're gonna have. Praise God, it's not like itchy, watery eyes and runny nose and that kind of stuff. But here are symptoms of the gospel-infected heart. Here's one, compassionate hearts. If you're infected by the gospel, here's what happens. Put on them. These are the things that you're putting on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, I gotta be honest. Uh, I look at a list like that and I go, uh-oh. I do. I mean, let's just, let's just put me under the microscope. How many of you would use any of those words to describe me? <laughs> Tell me about your pastor. Such compassion and kindness and he's, he's humility and he's meek. I mean, that's the word that comes to mind, just meek. And there's just patience. Mm. But, but here's the good news. We're talking about this in our disciple group this morning, but here's the good news. Okay, uh, you think I'm not very kind and compassionate now. This is the sanctified version of me, all right? This is God's improvement from the inside out, okay? Imagine me without Christ. I'm a gangster, you understand? I mean, it is terrible. And, and the, the thing, that, the illustration that comes to mind is, is, um, is like, you know, you have the, right, hopefully you have the right expectations of your children based on where they are in their stage of life. Like when your kids first, beginning to take a step, what do you do? You celebrate every little baby step. In fact, some of you don't celebrate steps. You give them credit for steps that aren't even actually steps. Like your kid just made it up to the couch and their head, you know, God made it so their head is extraordinarily large to help in the walking process. And they caught something out of the corner of their eye and it was shiny or it was their mom and their head went toward it. And in order not to die, they stuck two legs out and then they fell on their face. And what did you do? Did any of you be like, what is wrong with this child? That's, that's your blood, darling. That ain't, that ain't my blood. My, my boy would have walked a long time. No, what do you do? You film that thing. It's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It might be on the news. You are celebrating. you call calling Nana. He's walking. The dad's already like filling out college scholarship applications. That looked like a high. I thought I saw the Heisman on the way down. I'm pretty sure, right? And so any little, any little spirit-inspired movement towards any of these areas, man, we have a, we have a God in heaven that delights over his children. You see, compassionate hearts does not mean you're a sap. To have a compassionate heart, it means that the things that break the heart of God begin to break your own heart. John 3.16, man, you, you probably ought to know that one. It says that God loves the world, and it means the people of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, don't love this world. You're like, well, how, how does that make sense? And what it means in 1 John 2.15 is you don't love the values and the systems of this world. John 3.16, God loves the people of this world rejects the values and systems of this world a lot of times we love the values and systems of this world and actually don't like the people of this world and to have a compassionate heart means the things that break the heart of god begin to break your heart you begin to see people not as objects and projects but as people that jesus christ gave his life for you begin to see injustice in this world and pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven That's what a compassionate heart is. It really is from the inside out. And then the next thing, kindness, in Greek, it really means kindness is the action that follows a compassionate heart. Compassionate heart is to see a thing and notice it and being stirred by it. And then kindness is to actually do something about it. A compassionate heart is It breaks my heart that there are people in the world that have not heard the gospel yet. And then kindness is you sign up to go on the mission trip to be the one that takes the gospel to them. So he says, put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. You see, humility is seeing yourself in light of the gospel. And so what humility says about yourself is, I am not humiliated by the things I used to do nor should I be honored for the things I used to do. But who am I? Who am I that you would choose me and adopt me into your family? That's what humility is and meekness. I don't know a man that thinks he wants to be meek. I mean, you know, last year we talked. I mean, last week we talked about what people would say at your funeral. Any fellow here go? You know what? I want somebody. To, he was such a meek man. See, we think meek is weak, because I guess because it rhymes. Meekness in Greek, actually, um, it's the same word that they use to describe the bit and bridle that you put on a horse. You see, meekness is just bridled strength. Meekness is taking this strength, this God-empowered strength, and not just letting it run amok everywhere, but actually focusing it on a thing. That's what meek is. And then the last one he gives is this, and patience. Why? Why are we to be patient? Well, how, how patient has God been with you? That's why we should be patient with one another. Not because we're patient people. Good Lord, if you pray for patience, let me tell you. You know what? You pray for patience, you're gonna have four flat tires tomorrow because you asked for it. Patience is not just like, you don't pray, dear God, give me patience. And then this little patience fairy goes, oh, wow, I'm so patient. No, God develops that as a fruit of the Spirit by putting you in situations that develop you and test your patience. So I'm going to tell you, man, if you want patience, help me coach some little league baseball, okay? (laughs) I lose my mind out there. I'm sure people, I'm sure some of you, many of you at all of our locations play baseball with us. And I'm surprised you still come to our church after seeing me, okay? Because I do. I lose my mind. I mean, I try to be clear and compassionate. And then these little, it's getting better, though. We're like 12 you now, so they can, act, you know, they actually know which end of the bat to hold and stuff. But the, the, the time, I've told you this before, but the time just put me over the edge is I'm coaching T-ball. Which I don't know why we start that early, but we all do, okay? It's crazy. And, um, and you gotta be on the field. And your primary job is to not let somebody's little butterfly get hit in the face with the ball. They usually won't get hit in the face because they're not looking at it. So, you know, they're all just snow calling. Did I hear snow calling? So they're, you're just out there, okay? And one day I look over in my third baseman, he was a pretty good little athlete, and my third baseman, arms down like this, is laying face first on the infield. And he's using the brim of his hat to just scoop up a mound of dirt. Just like that. I'm like What are you doing? What are And I'm yelling, I'm yelling at him, you know, and what are you doing? And he looks at me as if I'm interrupting his what he's doing. And so I just leave him there. Part of me is not leaving. I think it's the safest position for him. If he stands up, he might take one in the face, okay? And I like, so, what are you doing? I just imagine God looking at me in my best of times, honestly, when I think I'm crushing it in ministry, when I think I'm just walking in the glory of God, and I think the almighty, holy and perfect God looks at me, and I'm the... Third basement over there. Like, Look at me. It's 1122. 1122. He's like, What are you doing? So again, but praise God, because my, my heart is infected with the gospel, these things are growing from the inside out, not the outside in. Verse 13, he keeps going says, bearing with one another, <laughs> bearing with it. Man, that's like putting up with one another, enduring one another. Like the, like the one another's that we live with, man, they'll get on your nerves. This is what Paul is admitting here. So we're gonna have to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, anybody got a complaint against another? I know you do, you fill it out on our prayer cards. <laughs> about me or the band or whatever no problem you just give us an opportunity to go biblical here's what we're supposed to do if anyone has a complaint against another forgiving each other you're like what how am i going to forgive they don't deserve to be forgiven okay here's how as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive oh well that's different so let me just ask you how has the lord forgiven you and you would go a lot okay that and, and did you get it all cleared up and then he forgave you No, actually, he forgave me, and it's in his forgiveness that he's helping me kind of straighten it out. Okay, well, that's how you are to forgive. You see, here's the deal. Forgiving people forgive people. And I've got a shocker for you. If you ain't given it, maybe you ain't got it. That's not good English. It's incredible theology. Maybe if you cannot forgive, it may be that you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Maybe you've never tasted forgiveness of all of your sins of all time. Therefore, you don't know how to give out forgiveness to one person for one sin for right now. You see, uh, no one, no one, no one can withhold forgiveness and simultaneously understand that we have been forgiven. You see, here's how it, here's kind of what Paul is talking about here. Part of what Paul is talking about is for us to demonstrate to the whole world that Christ is all and in all, then the way we should live together is described in a bunch of these commands and words. That any time two objects get together and they rub up against one another, there is friction. And wherever there is friction, there is heat. And if there's enough friction and heat, it will break down the system. So like think of your engine, your car engine. There is friction and there is heat. So you have to put motor oil in there so that you keep the heat and friction down so that the thing doesn't break down. And so Paul talks talks really clear about it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, but here he alludes to it too. When you get a bunch of sinners together in this thing called a church which is just, just a bunch of sinners in need of a savior, and we get together, we start rubbing together, we start bumping into each other, and our sin and our selfishness and our pride and our ego rubs each other the wrong way, and you're like, hold on, I have a complaint against him. Okay, that's cool. That's just the friction of what it means to do life together. And What Paul is saying is the motor oil to keep the engine of the church going is forgiveness. We forgive one another. And it's supposed to be so that when a world sees that, they're like, wow. This Christ thing really is working in that situation. And he goes on to say in verse 14, he's gonna kind of wrap it all up. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see that love is not a feeling, but love is defined by a whole bunch of actions towards one another. Some of the primary marital advice I give to married couples that are all busted up when they say, yeah, but I just don't love her. I'm like, okay, that's cool. So then just love her. Like while you're not loving her, then just love her and then watch what happens about how you love her. And what I mean, you're talking about some feeling that you read about in the notebook or some stupid movie you went to instead of seeing a good movie like Saving Private Ryan. And so... (laughs) While you're waiting on this thing in here to get all stirred up, what you need to do is just your actions towards her ought to be love, and then you watch what happens with your feelings when you line them up with the way the Bible tells us to treat one another. And so love is things like love does not insist its own way, and love keeps no record of wrong. That's another word for forgiveness. And love trusts, and love is not easily angered, and love covers a multitude of sins. You just do that towards one another. You put on love, and that'll bind everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. You see, really what happens here when he says let the peace of Christ rule in your heart Um, it's really a cause and effect. In other words, how could the peace of Christ not rule in your heart if you are hidden in Christ, he is all, and he's the all in all in your life, and the gospel has infected your heart, and because of your gospel infection, then your symptoms are these things, love and forgiveness and patience and kindness. If those things begin to uh, come out of you, how is the peace not going to rule in your heart? See, a lot of people are looking for peace in all the wrong places. Peace is not found in your circumstances. It's not. You get all your circumstances right, then you're just bored. Peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is peace. To know Jesus is to know peace. This is why Paul says in Philippians, he says, do not be anxious for anything. Well, how in the heck am I supposed to do that, Paul? You ever been anxious for something and just try to unanxious yourself? Like how do you do that? How did? Hey, you scared? Uh huh. Stop. Okay. I didn't know. You know how do you do that? Uh, My wife does not love to fly. As much as I tell her it's going to be okay, it doesn't. That's not how it works. Are you anxious? Mm -hmm. We'll just stop. But so then he gives us the how. Be anxious for nothing. Okay. How? By prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. So you bring that to the Lord. And the, priest, the, the peace of Christ that transcends understanding, you can't explain anxiety out of anybody because peace is not found in a set of circumstances or in a theological dissertation on why you should not be anxious. But peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and be thankful. Underline that part. And here's why. And be thankful. Because in the next two verses, the Holy Spirit of God inspires the Apostle Paul to write the word thankful three times in just a few verses. Now, I don't know what level of Bible study you are, but when God decides to repeat himself three times in a minute, you might want to write that one down. So, in the next three verses, listen, he says, and be thankful. Verse 16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. There it is again, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So right three times in a row, thanks, thanks, thanks. Here's the deal. I talked to our staff about this just a couple weeks ago. You see, I think a lot of people, especially Christian people, And especially with the rise, everybody here knows their disc profile and what kind of personality type you are and all of that sort of stuff. And that stuff is really, really good. It's really good to know how God wired you. I think a lot of people get attitude and personality types mixed up. You see, Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be dot, dot, dot. Some of you know what it should be. It doesn't even matter what it says because the moment it says it should be, it means this. You are responsible for your attitude. And a lot of times, people have really crappy attitudes, and they try to blame it on their personality. Oh, no, 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 that's just the way I'm wired. Well, then how would God give you a command that you have no control over? You are responsible for your own attitude because your attitude should be a thing. And so basically, if I boil it down to its most simplest form, um, your attitude is on a continuum of either entitled or grateful. That's it. You can call it whatever you want, good, bad, whatever, happy, crappy, whatever you want, but it is just... Entitled or grateful? And it's up to you. You have responsibility for that. You see, the person that is entitled says, look at me. And, and the person that is grateful is looking at the cross. And the person that is entitled thinks, do you know who I am? And the person that is grateful says, who am I that you would take my place? And the person that is entitled says, you owe me. And the person that is thankful or grateful says, I could never repay you. And the person that is entitled looks down their nose at other people. And the person that is grateful sets their mind on things above. Now here's the problem. Nobody thinks they're entitled. Everybody can point out entitlement in everybody else. Let me just tell you, just just truthfully here, is anybody here 25 or under? If you raise your hand, if you're 25 or under, ready? Raise your hand. Okay, Ooh, a lot. All right. Let me just tell you the truth. Everybody 40 and up thinks all of you are entitled. <laughs> we just do for what, it, like even if you didn't do anything, we just think yeah, they're entitled because I see it on Facebook they all are. Whatever it is, they just do. They just automatically tag you with that. I don't even know what you think about us. That we're awesome or that we're just old. I don't know what you think. Okay. <laughs> and so, but the deal is, the deal is. Uh, if you don't recognize it in yourself, then I'm gonna give you some warning signs that are robbing you of being able to obey the command of be thankful. It's because you got an attitude of entitlement instead of an attitude of gratitude. Here's how to know. It's, it's first of all, you, you watch your head. You watch what's going on in your head. And the moment in your head you begin to have imaginary conversations with people, it's a sign that you're entitled. Because in your imaginary conversations, what we begin to do is make a case for ourselves. So watch your head. And then the second thing is you watch your mouth. When you begin to realize, you know what, the majority of what's coming out of my mouth is complaining and arguing. Then what you are saying out of your mouth is, I deserve more. I'm not getting what I want. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. And so if you wonder, hmm, should I complain and argue about this? Well, if it falls in the everything category, then Paul goes, no, you shouldn't do that. Because here's what happens Here's what happens when you complain about other people, when you can begin to talk junk about other people. The Bible would call that slander. You call it prayer requests. I understand. Me too. But, but what you don't want to do, when you say things with your mouth, you don't need your ears to hear that junk because your brain will believe it and it will fall into your heart and you'll start feeling that towards people. And it's just basically Entitlement you know, because your boss didn't do right, or your spouse didn't do right, or your teacher didn't do right, and you're like, ta ta ta. And, and then we, we've created some words that try to give us a pass to do what the Bible says don't do. And I'm just venting or sinning. So watch your mind when you begin to have those imaginary conversations, and watch your mouth, what you say, and then watch your heart. When you're far from God, you're really close to being entitled. And so what do you do? How do you be thankful when you don't just feel thankful? You take responsibility for your attitude. And you try to, the way to get that needle from over here on the entitled side to over here on the grateful side is the moment you have those um, imaginary conversations where you're making a case for yourself, then the Bible would say take every captive, every thought captive. And in those imaginary conversations, how about start praying for that person and not about that person? Because you cannot actually pray for someone and not have your heart grow for them. And what I mean by pray for them, not about them, a lot of us pray about people. Dear God, please help Ted be more like me so I would like him more. Thank you. You know, that, that's not praying. I mean, that guy at work that frustrates you, don't pray that he would quit frustrating you. Pray for him. Pray that he would come to know Christ. Pray that his marriage would be blessed. Pray that he has the best quarter of his life, that God would bless him or break him, whatever it takes. And don't vote extra for the breaking, but you really pray for him. I tell you, that's how you make it not about you. And then you watch your mouth. You look for every single opportunity you can to say these two things thank you and good job. I mean, the person that you're most jealous of at work because you feel entitled, because you think God owes you what He gave them, then you, you begin to have the discipline of going to that person and going, hey, good job. And when your mind goes to the imaginary conversation, but I know I could do it better, then you pray, dear God, I thank you so much. You gave them that opportunity and I pray they would have more opportunities in that area. And you say with your mouth, thank you, good job. Because what'll begin to happen is your ears can hear your mouth and then your brain will believe what it hears and it'll fall into your heart and the way you feel about that person can begin to change. And then you watch your heart. If you're an if you feel that entitlement coming on, you preach the gospel to yourself. You look at the cross and it will bring you to a place, if you're serious about it, where you will say, "Who am I that you would take my place? Who am I that you would take my place?" I think about a year ago I get confused, because I can't remember all my time learned together I ask you to write a Thanksgiving list that, that, that you would have that you would write down one thing that you were thankful to God about for every year that you've been alive. Some of you are probably still working on it because, you know, you're old. That's good. Praise God. you got a lot more to be thankful about. So are you 25 and under? You should knock this out in just a minute. So one of the things that I do, I, keep, I literally I keep it on my phone so the moment I begin to catch myself making a case for myself, I bring this thing out and remind myself of the things that I am grateful for. Because one of the things I want is I want to become an expert at how good God is to me. That's what I want to be. I want to be an expert on knowing, keeping at the forefront of my mind, how good God is to me and understanding he owes me nothing. So here's 43 things I'm I'm thankful for. My salvation, Gretchen, my kids, J.P. and Reagan, the church of 1122, a mama and daddy that love me in their own way even though they're not really good at loving each other, health, wealth globally speaking, a staff team that I get to work with that follows and respects me, being American, being Southern, praise God. I praise Him every day for that, right? <laughs> Never met a person in the world that so says, We retired, we're moving up north. Never, ever, ever, okay. <laughs> I'm grateful for the elders. I'm grateful for friends like Doug's, one of my best buddies. I'm thankful for a sharp mind. I'm thankful for Pastor Jerry Sweat and Beach United Methodist Church. I'm thankful for Coach Bull Lee and Camp Pine Hill. I'm I'm thankful for the gift of preaching. I'm thankful that I get to work with my friends. I'm thankful for religious freedom. For Mert, that's my grandma. I'm thankful for Lynn Turner, the first person that invited me to do youth ministry. I'm thankful for the woods of South Georgia. For Dr. Bill Ross, he's the guy that hired me out of seminary. Um, I'm thankful for the life and legacy of Mackenzie Wilson. I'm thankful for my in-laws. I have really good in-laws. I hear some don't. I'm thankful for modern medicine. I had an appendectomy 10 years ago. 100 years ago, I'd be dead. Today, by God's common grace of medicine, I'm alive. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Taco Tuesday. It's number 26. It made the list. I'm thankful for people that constantly pray for me. I'm thankful for clean running water, for cool fall mornings, for living in Jacksonville, for the beach, for ministry connections, for good bourbon. I'm sorry, Baptist. You don't have to put that on your list. It made mine, okay? I'm thankful for my neighborhood, for Gretchen's gift of singing, For pheasant hunting in South Dakota, for our home, for my children's friends, for my truck, my calling, for God's grace. I'm thankful that God's word is so accessible. I'm thankful for an opportunity to invest in other pastors. It is almost impossible to go through that list, if you're honest, whatever your list is. And it not do a thing in you that helps you become an expert at how good God is to you thankfulness is a symptom of a gospel-infected heart. So he says, be thankful. And then, verses 16 and 17. Now, just real quick, tell me if this does not sound like the church of 1122, the services that you come to. I hope it does, because we modeled it after these verses. Ready? And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. See, gospel-infected people love the scripture. I do not know a person that is walking closely with the Lord that does not abide in the word of God. And so what do we do here at 1122? We teach and admonish in the word of God with the scriptures. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what do we do around here? Man, we are really serious about glorifying God in worship and in word. I do not know the person that's heart has been infected by the gospel that it does not stir in them passionate and deep worship. That does not mean that we all have to do it the same way, whether it's hands up or hands down or whatever, but the thing is, there is a genuine response to God for who he is and what he's done. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, gospel-infected people don't let the worship stop when the service ends. Like when we say be free, you know what that means? Be free to go and be who God has called and created you to be. Don't just make this a thing you attend. Help this fuel you in the gospel with thanksgiving for us to be admonished in the word of God to turn our affections toward him in song and lifted hands to worship him so that we're fueled up so that when we go to work and when we go to school and when we go home that whatever we do all week long in word and deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like like that our week we would say, God, may my life be a a love song to you. May the way I go to work, because I've been infected with the gospel, may that bring you just as much honor and praise as it is when I sing you songs on the weekend. Now, let me give you a big fat warning. The danger here is this: is that as you look through this list and you go, "Uh oh, I, I got some work to do." I mean, I gotta, I gotta, try, I need to try to be more compassionate, and I need to work with kindness. Oof, I gotta start. I gotta be kind. I'm not kind, and. I need to be patient, okay? I'm not gonna honk my horn tomorrow on JTB one time. All right, that's what I'm gonna do. (laughs) So the problem with that is is if if you use this as like a litmus test, then you'll forget the first three chapters of Colossians. And if you try to just work on the symptoms and go from outside in, you'll never be infected with the gospel. You see, here's the point is that a heart infected with the gospel has two primary symptoms. Love God, love people. I didn't make that up. Lawyer comes to Jesus, okay. Sum up the law. What's the most important law? He goes, it's easy. Love God, love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that's an inside-out relationship with the Lord. The Bible calls this fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits, not like there's a bunch of them, but there's fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so like, if you go to the grocery store and you go to the fruit section, we call that produce because it is produced. If you go to Lowe's and you go to the hardware section, th- those, are, those are things that have been manufactured, not produced. And what begins to happen is sometimes Christians try to manufacture symptoms or manufacture fruit. And if I took a 2 by 4 and nail an orange to it and call it alive, It's a lie. And so that's what, and it would look silly, right? Like, what are you doing? Man, I'm growing oranges. No, you're not. You're making a mess. And if heaven would look at you just trying to be more kind for kindness sake, it'd say, what are you doing? I'm I'm trying to, I'm being a Christian. No, 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 no. No. The way to produce fruit is to be rooted in your relationship with Jesus Christ. See, so if you if you look at these, again, these are the effects, these are the symptoms of, the symptoms of the gospel-infected heart. So how do you do this? How do you grow in compassion and patience and meekness and humility and thankfulness and love? Here's how you do it. Well, I'll just read from Jesus. Here's what he said John 15 4. Jesus says, Abide in me. Abide. We don't use that word anymore. It means this it means stay close come here come here get real close abide in me you ever sitting in a living room with somebody you love it could be your kids could be your wife boyfriend girlfriend whatever and they're over there and you're over here and you know what I do at my house I'll be like come on abide abide, get close it could be my daughter right she's the best one the other two take a little coaxing but Reagan come on abide and what she does is she just gets close And what Jesus is saying here is abide in me, get close to me and I'll abide in you. I'll get close to you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, seek the Lord and you will find him. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is not playing hide and seek with you. He's saying, come on, just lean in, just lean in. You want to you wanna live the Christian life? Okay, quit getting so hung up on the, on the fruit. You need to get really dialed into the root. You want to be more compassionate? Okay, quit trying to be more compassionate. Love Jesus. You want to you wanna grow in your humility? Okay, quit trying to grow in your humility. If you're trying to get better at humility, it's evident you don't understand what humility is. You grow, some of you are like, I don't get it. Okay, that's fine. What you do is you love Jesus. The way to put on love, which binds everything together, is not to try to be more loving from the outside in. It is that you love Jesus more. You, you abide in him. So at the end of every service, we close the same way pretty much all the time. And there are some of you that make a beeline and you're like, dang it, he's calling me out at every campus, I'm calling you out right now. Look, we got plenty of time, all right? We got plenty of time. The reason that we end our services with singing because so that's what this says. it's so what we're supposed to do the people with a gospel infected heart that they sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that means all kinds of different songs that's what they sing with thanksgiving and so when we say we join our voices together here's, here's what I dare you to do here's what I dare you to do I dare you to lean in in a way that you never have before I, I do I dare you to lean in in a way that you never have before like, I mean, I dare you. You don't have to do this all the time, okay? But I dare you. Like, if you've never lifted your hand, I dare you. I dare you to go, like, like you're being sworn in, okay? <laughs> to Just kind of lean in. Okay, Lord, ooh, I don't know why, why does this matter? You say it in the Bible, lift your hands in the sanctuary. I'm not in the sanctuary, I'm in the worship center, but it, whatever, okay? So, but I dare you, okay? Or I dare you to turn around and kneel down at your chair and just pray, pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And pray. That as you lean into the Lord, that he would just kind of swoop you up and lean into you. We built altar rails and we put carpets up here so that you would have just this kind of, that we would have this kind of dedicated place to pray in every place. All of our locations look the same right up here. And I dare you, maybe you've never come to the altar before and you're like, how in the heck is that gonna help me with patience? That doesn't have anything to do with patience. Right, it's a way that you can abide in him. You could step out of what is comfortable for you and you could draw near to God. And he promises that that he would draw near to you. And maybe for the very first time, you just come down here and you kneel down and you pray and you watch what happens in your affections for the Lord. Or maybe you sit right where you are and you begin to write out your thanksgiving list however old you are, however, you know, one for every year you've been alive. And you allow that to stir your affections for the Lord. And so instead of of focusing on like what you do, you could really lean into who you are in Christ. Holy and beloved. And then watch what the gospel does when it infects your heart. So at every location, would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father. God, I thank you that you are such a good, good dad. You meet us exactly, exactly where we are. And Lord, I know from the view from heaven, we all look like a bunch of little toddlers, kind of awkward and wobbly. And some people are gonna take the very first step, God. They're gonna lift a hand, they're gonna pray a prayer. They're going to lean into a song instead of running out to the parking lot. They're just going to lean into you and we claim the promises of your word, God, back to you. That whenever we draw near to you, God, you draw near to us. And that whenever we seek you with all of our heart, God, that you can be found. And God, that you love us not by anything that we have done, but you demonstrated your love for us by what Christ did on the cross. God I thank you I thank you that we can love you back because you first loved us and God it is our prayer that as we take off the old and as we put on the new as we declare that Christ is all and all in all that we would not just worship you here on the weekends at all these different buildings but God that our very lives would be a love song to you we pray this in Jesus name Amen